every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator, individuality, the power to think and to do. I give this as a springboard to express what each we each have. We each have our own God-given individual thinking and ability to use, meaning there are a lot of individual details in your particular circumstances. Glean what you can from this and many other sources and apply them to yours. Just because I do things a certain way doesn't mean it will be the same for you. It sometimes takes years to decide certain ways to do things based on circumstances, crops, spacing, money, farming philosophy, education, to name a few. Because there are so many avenues to go down with this topic of orcharding, I plan to go through my seasons for sugar plums or prunes, fall, winter, spring, summer, and certain basic aspects of crop production for those. I'm leaving out many details to look at mainly field operations. There is not enough time to go over all aspects. I recommend you use your local university extension office or ag advisor in your area for research, if you have one, and filter that with your own knowledge and ideas. And of course, now there are so many resources available online for data, it's hard to miss getting lots of information, but also misinformation. So find someone that's experienced in your area for your particulars, visit other farms and farmers in your area. Even where I live, what I do may not translate exactly to someone who farms in the dirt in the foothills 15 miles away from my place. Many times, but many times I think much of what I do is simple enough to be called farming for dummies. At least that is how I feel about certain aspects of what I do. I wanted to, let's see, okay, what I present may not satisfy your interest or needs in particular. I will try to give you, give this short enough, keep this short enough to give time for questions. I'm here to serve and share within the realm of my experience. But a little note in regard to sugar plums and the prune interchange. So some of you may know this, but within the prune industry, we were kind of having an image problem. And so the marketing group said, do people like prunes better or dried plums better? <laughs> and so they really did this. They went to the, went to the, you know, the uh, consumers and they said, and I don't know exactly how they did it, but they let them, they said, hey, try these. Do you like these better? These are prunes or try these. These are, these are dried plums. And they generally like dried plums better. <laughs> And same thing. same thing. So we changed the name throughout the industry. Only in the United States, is what I understand. I think other countries kept prunes. So we've always, as growers, have always called them prunes. So I kind of stumble back and forth between sugar plums and dried plums and prunes. And so you'll hear me mostly call them prunes, probably. And you'll, you'll hear me call am almonds almonds, because that's what I grew up in Northern California. We call them almonds. So, and there's another thing about that I could tell you sometime. <laughs> if you want to really know the truth. So anyway, here's uh, on the tree, off the tree, the trees, and then the dried fruit, you know. Uh, that, so I'm mainly going to talk about these 
you know, there's, there's too many, like the lady that came here that wanted to ask about fire blight on apples. I mean, there's only so many things, tr travels I can go down, roads I can go down to talk about. And I don't know everything, uh, believe it or not. So I farm with organic production methods, which has its benefits and downsides, as conventional ag does as well. I'm just showing what I do. I'm not disparaging anyone's particular methods. There is a wide range of tools and methods if you aren't tied to any particular set of production market rules. This is a picture of conventionally grown California peaches. I help my brother produce these in a separate operation from mine. And you can see an award we received in 2017. This is as it states, awarded annually to recognize the association member with the highest quality deliveries statewide. And these are our peaches. So you can see, you can use many methods to produce a good crop. Anyway, after harvest, I will put on at least one or maybe two irrigations. I will then take out trees that are dead or push out a whole orchard if I'm starting a new one and prep the ground before the winter rains start. So here you can just see, this is my grandson and granddaughter. They're helping me open the canal valve to, to the field. Sometimes we get dead trees we've got to take out, and this is one of our tools we use to push out brush out of the fields. Um, generally, if I'm starting a new orchard, I will plant a rotation crop for a season, or even a few years. That will be something like wheat, safflower, hay, or perhaps a vegetable crop. Then I will be back to rip, level, and prep my ground for an orchard. During that time, I can pull soil samples and add amendments and plan my irrigation system. If I got any more words. So here, this is a, a, a hay crop I planted, grass hay in the summer as a rotation out of uh, vegetables before I was gonna plant uh, uh, prunes back. And here, wheat, we grow wheat. This is one of our wheat crops. This is a, a pretty common tool in our area used for uh, after, after an orchard comes out, we, we use that to rip the roots and loosen the soil. Um, and these are some of the deep root, you know, the ripper blades that go down the soil. This is just a small tool that I use for putting in uh, grass seed. That's what I planted this with. Well, I mean, it just, well, I mean, small. I mean, it, it's made to put that grass seed just, just barely in the dirt. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I don't know, maybe it's whatever it is. If the area is large, I will use a local surveyor to lay out my orchard grid and an irrigation supplier to plan my irrigation system, which is important to calibrate if you're going to, into a drip irrigation type irrigation. Neither one is needed, meaning neither advisor is needed if you have enough time and knowledge. And I do a combination of both because many times I'm putting together systems to suit my particular needs and circumstances. So here, here's just a, I know you can't probably see that, we, we use a, a cable, we put a marker on here with a little cinch nut and mark it with a ribbon and uh, put those on, our, on a, a cable maybe, I don't know, 100 and 200 feet long and this is our tree spacing. We'll put uh, that on there and then we, we mark our, uh, paint our stakes white so we can see them in the field. This guy's helped me lay out the field. He, he's a surveyor and we, he just makes our main grid. And then we come back with this and we stretch between the main grids and we use a, a group of people and we, we come in and we put in our stakes at these markers. And then we do the whole field. That way we, we don't, he's not out there all the time helping us stake. We just 
We just have them put in like, you know, the 100 or 200 foot markers and then we stretch across and mark each tree. And then these help us see it. And then this is just a really nice tool that I use. It's a five point ripper that just to loosen ground. Uh, row crops usually I use that, but it's a really good tool for loosening up your soils. My own ad adaptation to suit my needs as an example, uh, I recently set up a drip irrigation system that was all buried irrigation lines. So I could mow and control weeds without hoses or emitters to get in the way. Though most of my irrigation is flood type from a canal system, I will show you, which I'll show you later. This just is an illustration. So I've done all my calibrations. We only needed a four inch pipe rather than say a 12 inch pipe to run my, and this is a pressure system. So we've, we've figured out all our system. It's all on a piece of paper, but we, now we're doing all this field work and it's all calibrated based on our flow, how much water we needed per tree, uh, what size pipe, and this main tubing. So what I did, I don't know anybody else is doing this, but we have all our trees marked out here. You can't see the, where the stakes are right now, but, and then we went back and we just, we have this little tool, we shank in all our drip lines. So this just, we feed the, this into the, a little tube and it dr drills it in the ground, say seven to 10 inches deep. And I just was having fun out there, but um, partly they, you want them getting hang up and, and rip your, your tubing out of the ground. So then we just bury all our, all our lines. And then um, this next little bit is uh, kind of my unique application, prim primarily for weed control and while my trees are young. As my trees are older, I prefer to move to a different system of irrigation for, more, for a more beneficial to the long-term biological system of production that I use. So after my line's buried, you can see there's my buried line and I'm just ha hooking a spaghetti tube up and running it over to, by my tree. This is a little ways from the tree, say like this. And we built this. So then these, these little tubes are made by a, a company in Angwin, California, and they're called uh, by a company that's DRI, I think deep root irrigation. And I use these to, so I could, because I can bury them under the ground and I don't get root intrusion. And then I just have a pressure compensated emitter that I put in there that, that, that regulates my flow, how much I'm putting on per hour, per minute, or whatever size it is based on pressure. And then I measure the depth, how deep I want it, and I built this little jig so I could just um, put them in at the same angle on every tree, the same distance from the tree, so I knew exactly when I came back, although I forgot that summer and I ran a shovel right through them. And so I came back to dig something up and I, I cut my lines. So that's one of the disadvantages, but, but then I know exactly where my stuff is and, and every tree's the same and I've got my, everything's under the ground. So I like that, but not forever. Um, it takes me time to think through all, all aspects of how I'm going to manage things. From row spacing, soil type, pruning styles, root stalks, and equipment I'm going to use for tree size and the kind I'm planting. For example, most of my prune orchards are between 16 and 20 feet apart. I can get away with a narrower spacing in the row if most of my equipment is driving through the width. So in the row, I may make it 16 feet and 18 or 20 for the width. My walnuts are placed 24 by 28, but that's not a fast, hard and fast rule. So I do that to allow room for a bigger tree. Use of sunlight is also a, a major factor. So filling the space well, but not too much because you want to have sunlight even to the orchard floor. 
Um, so a lot of those factors are based on tree size and because walnuts don't always get the same size. Prune trees pretty much do, so you can't, don't vary that that much. <clears throat> I consider mower width and other equipment such as harvesters to allow room and efficiency of time as much as possible. So for example, this is a 12 foot mower. I've got a, um, a 10 foot, a nine foot, a 10 foot, and a six foot. This is the biggest one I have, so I can get this through most all of my fields in the, in the width row. Um, a walnut harvester, this is a little bit longer length. This is a prune harvester we use to harvest the prunes. And you need enough width to drive through, of course, from tr this way. We can get by with about a, probably a 15 foot spacing here, but uh, there's other reasons we don't do that. And then you need enough space this way to get this deflector down between the trees. Um, so prunes, you know, you can plant a little tighter sometimes. And this is just a picture of our road spacing here as the tractor goes down. In my area, when planting a new orchard, I will hire a laser leveler to set my slope, regardless of type of irrigation, because I want the winter rains to flow off the field, not just the summer irrigation, so as not to have wet pockets that will potentially kill the trees. And especially if the soil types are heavy and hold water. Usually I am putting a one to 2% grade, depending on soil type. That's one to 2% say a tenth or two tenths per, per hundred. See, depending on soil type and, and crop and length of run, as well as possibly some other factors. Alfalfa, for example, needs a steeper grade to avoid standing water, which can kill it in the summertime. Well, wintertime too. Um, your soil type will often determine what type of crop or tree type or rootstock you will plant. Prunes will tolerate heavier soils, more clay than peaches, cherries, and walnuts, for example. And within those varieties, certain rootstocks are better than others. For example, in one part of my walnuts, I have, a planted, I have planted a rootstock that will tolerate wetter soils because in that particular part of the field, it has more clay. In this case, you can see this is a laser leveler. This is not my equipment. I hired this guy to come in. And it has a sending unit, which is set up on a tripod outside the field, sends a laser beam across to the receiver, and that adjusts the the bucket up and down to the exact precise place you want that field to be cut or filled. And then that way we can get a precise slope on our field almost exactly. And then, you know, this is one of the reasons you want to do it. Because in the wintertime we had a big storm come through and we, we weren't prepared for it, but this is what we had. And this is in our row crops, some of our vegetables. And it just, you know, you got to get this water off. And so that's why you want to slope your field in the wintertime. So we've done that since this, but this was, this is supposed to run around and go out, but this came at so, so fast, so quick, it just didn't have time to run off. Um, I will do most of my tree planting prep in the fall, after harvest, before the winter rains. I like to have a crumbly, fairly dry soil when I do this, so it airs out and it doesn't pack. For replants with an existing orchard, I will backhoe out dead trees and roots in a four to five foot hole or deeper and add whatever dressing I have or I consider needed at that time. In my case, we utilize our, our horse manure or compost or something of that nature. If you have determined any other type of amendments you need, this will be a good time to incorporate them. I add this material in as I backfill the hole and, let it, and then I let it rest, probably for several months. I will not plant any trees until later in late winter or early spring when the soil and weather is right for bare root trees. 
not too wet. The exception is potted trees. I like to plant those in the fall. And I realize I'm in California, so we have dry summers. But in the fall, say like October, a lot of these potted trees are available. That's relatively new. I'll show you these. This next slide has potted. These are the potted trees I use. It has this like a little sleeve that's tapered. It's not those big buckets like in the nursery and in the box stores. So it's it's ready to go on the ground. And so I, I will plant those in the fall to let them get uh, go into the winter dormancy, so they're not drying out too quick. If, I, if you plant them in the spring, all that, that root is trying to draw moisture just out of that little pot. And, and you, even though it's in the ground, it's, all it's doing is it's still sucking the water just out of that little peat pot. It hasn't acclimated to the soil. So it'll dry out just in a few days. And especially if you're planting, even in the fall when it's warm. And so I have to keep that well irrigated in the fall and maybe a day or two, I'll give it water. Give it, and this is out of the whole field. And so then you, then after winter rain start, it goes dormant, and then that in the spring, it just is ready to go right into the parent soil and come right out in the spring as a full blast. If you plant it in the, in the spring and it goes into the summer heat, it's trying to get that water and it's not acclimated to the soil yet, and you're trying to irrigate, trying to bring it back, and it's just, you'll have a, a harder time if you do a potted soil, potted plant in those kind of conditions. So I try to plant my potted ones in the fall, which I've only done potted soils plots for probably a couple seasons out of the, you know, 50 years. And now we're just starting to do those a little bit. Bare root is typically what I would do. And I couldn't get potted this last fall, so I planted bare root. I'll be planting bare root probably this spring, or that was a year ago. So, anyway. Well, bare root you don't get until the nursery digs them. So um, you, you would go ahead and, um, you know, I don't, they wouldn't probably be ready till, till I get home. You know, probably maybe they may be calling me now and say, hey, but then I've got to wait for dry weather, the ground to dry out, and then I'll just, I'll plant them as soon as the ground's dry. If then it's not dry enough, I put them in cold storage. And I, I've planted bare root trees as late as July and still got good results. But that's because our ground wasn't prepped. We had to, we prepped our ground late and we didn't get done until spring and, and it just put us way off. So I usually plant bare root in the, as soon as the moisture is good in the spring and then they, they push right away in the parent soil. They have parent soil all around the roots. You bury them in parent, parent soil, and it just goes right away, and they take off. And these, you'll see some trees I, I planted this last spring. Uh, not, maybe not really good pictures, but, oh. So anyway, this is just my, we're back on out the trees, pretty self-explanatory, and we're, we're adding our compost or whatever we want to put in the soil back, and we're backfilling this. We just push it back in and add what we want at that time. So it's a nice big hole. It's pretty crumbly, and it's, this stays like this for a long time until the, the rain settle it down and it, the roots get a good chance to get into that loose soil in the spring. So um, throughout the winter and spring, I start pruning trees. This is my daughter Elise. She's here with me today. She's doing some pruning, and this is some experimenting I'm doing with a flamer for weed control. I found this to be helpful at very specific timing, usually after harvest, after the first rain, before the leaves fall, and although I had good success, although I had a good success in a very tight three-day window when the conditions were, were right this winter just a few weeks ago. I only use this in my walnut orchard, next to the trees, partly because of the need to have a fairly clean orchard floor for harvest in walnuts, and I have mostly annual weeds there. Controlling perennials is, is expensive and not as effective with this method. 
I have found this to be effective for annuals just after the weeds sprout when there's no fire hazard. If I did this in the summer, I'd be burning up my orchard. <laughs> even in the fall, this was uh, two years ago, even in the fall, the heat coming up into the leaves scorched the leaves uh, when I was doing this. And this was the first year I ever tried it, and I did it one other time just a about three weeks ago, and I really like it. It's worked very well for me. Um, for harvest, for keeping the weeds off the, off the berm. So this is a simple sample of early pruning techniques. I use a 30 to 36 inch just for the trunk, and then a 3, 6, 8 to 10 pattern for my scaffolding, which I will try to explain. When I first plant the tree, I will prune off all the limbs and cut the tree off about 30 to 36 inches. This will form the trunk. After the first year's growth, as you see here, I will select three main scaffold branches and cut them back. The first few years, my intention is to form the tree. You can prune it longer in length and it will produce earlier fruit, but it may not be as strong of a framework. So this is the same field. This is earlier in, in the spring when I planted the tree, cut off all the limbs and I just cut it off here. I usually cut it about waist high and just and then this is where that cut was made. And then it pushed out all these limbs. And then I selected three out of that and I cut those back. And I just try to balance it around the tree. So this is the, this is the cut. You see this cut right here? Yeah. That's this cut I made right here. Okay. So all, everything's come off the tree. It just looks like a little stick standing out there. And that's a mistake a lot of people make. In fact, I, bought, I couldn't find cherry trees a few years back. And so I just went down to a big box store and they had cherry trees and they were like 10 feet tall. And I don't want, you know, cherry trees, you, you really got to prune them hard to get them to push out. And so I brought that thing home. It had leaves and everything. It was in a pot in the wrong time of year. But I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And of course, I just do my rare thing. I take that tree, this, and that's what you need to do. If you don't, unless you want some long stick you can't pick, I just cut it off. And then it pushes out all the branches down below where you want them. Just let and start your new tree. And that's what this is. Basically, we just start right away that way. So this is the second leaf. So that tree that I had on the other slide, these are the three right here. So now I'm going to select two off each of those. So here's my description. Here I'm continuing the framework of six, the next six limbs, plus or minus, to continue the structure of the tree. Two from each of the three limbs a year before, gradually opening up the tree. The next year I will select limbs from those to make eight to 10 limbs for my main structure. In this process, I keep in mind to encourage the growth and direction of my main limbs. I will not select secondary limbs from these below my shoulder, mainly because those will be in the way of, a, of tractor tires and harvesters as we move through the field. As the tree continues to go up it, full, to full height, I will then put a galvanized wire, tree wire around the whole tree to keep it from breaking and falling apart as it loads up with fruit. So I'm just taking those three and I'm dividing it evenly around as much as I can and I'm opening it up because I want to get sunlight in the middle of the tree as it grows as well. So this was, the, this was the same tree here, right here to here. And I just pruned out all that other junk that was in there and left it move, and then I just pruned them a little longer. And then this is the third leaf. So this one grew out, not the same tree I don't think, but this one grew out. And then I'm, I did the same thing. I, I took off those, off those six, then I'm taking eight to, eight to 10 off those and continuing my structure, my tree on up. 
And when it reaches full height, that's when I'll wrap it with a wire and that holds the tree from falling apart as it, as it loads up with fruit. We do that with peaches too. Walnuts we don't tie, we just tie peaches and prunes. So that's, that's just a basic, uh, it's, it's kind of fun. You wanna, I, I, I'd like to give you some instructions on pruning. I enjoy pruning. Um, not that I'm, I just do my own thing, but that's what it is. So in the winter and early spring, when planting trees, this is bare root, I'm just digging a hole with shovels big enough to place the tree because I've already done most of all my major tree hole prep earlier in the fall. In the case of a whole field, we have done all of our deep ripping and soil prep ahead of time. At planting time, I'm just fine-tuning nutrients and using a well-placed, high-quality compost as well as beneficial soil bacteria mixed with a liquid compost tea. I am currently using Perfect Blend compost and a bacteria blend from growth products and a tea from converted organics. In my case, I place the strongest roots to the southeast because of prevailing winds in our area. I try to put the curvature of the bud union to the west to minimize sunburn. I'll try to describe that to you. And generally plant the tree the same ground level as the nursery. Then I cut the tree off at the level I want my first limbs for tree scaffolding to develop and completely whitewash the tree to prevent sunburn. So I know you can't see the bud. So if this would be, you can't see the bud union, but it's a subtle thing because you have to balance where's the root and where's the bud union. It's not gonna be perfect every time. We try to, but if the, my winds are, at my place the winds are coming from the south, southeast. So I want the strong roots there. So when the, bloom, the winds blow, it'll hold that tree better in the ground. Uh, the bud union just is a factor of our, our heat comes from the west as the sun setting. So I want to I want to turn that bud union into the sun, not away from it, because the angle will burn it quick easier, quicker. But whitewashing can make up the difference for that a lot of times. This is the little feature that we use to plant trees. If you've never seen it, this is very simple. We just cut some notches in a board. So when we we take we pull our main stake, that's where our tree where our stake was. So when we pull that and we dig a hole we won't know where to put the tree back. So we just pull the stake, we move it over here one, we add a new stake over here in this notch. When we plant our tree, we just place our tree in that notch where the stake was. That way we know all of our trees are lined up straight the way they used to be. Just for an independent planter, that just keeps your rows lined up. And so here we're adding some nutrients, a little bit as we're planting. Um, these are apricots in this case, potted trees. We're putting in some tea and then this is a group of school kids that we had out one day we're showing them what we're doing uh, that was kind of fun um, whitewashing is important to prevent sunburn which can cause secondary troubles with insect damage these trees are coming out of the nursery from close quarters and then being placed in a single tree as a single tree in full sunlight so they need some protection the first year or two a water-based latex paint is adequate but for organic methods, I use a material called surround, which is basically white clay, kale and clay. And I mix it with a sticker like new film P. But I will try to put it on after the winter rains because it does not stay on as well as regular paint. If you are not tied to organics, a latex paint is simple, safe, and effective. So here you see sunburn, and this is just, you know, we do this all our trees out here. 
In the winter, I take inventory of what materials I have and plan for ordering materials I may need. I calculate amounts and costs and calendar them as best I can, and I consider any changes and improvements for my orchards and consult with advisors about my plan. I attend trade shows and educational seminars like this one. I service and maintain equipment. I have a running list of notes and ideas to plan and consider for my operation. Also, I usually apply, this is just a secondary little part of this. See, I usually apply a delayed dormant spray of oil to help control scale, aphids, or mites. I use what is called an organic 440 oil. A delayed dormant is close to bloom, close to and before the bloom, because the sap is moving into the tree and there is less chance of burning the tree with oil and the insects are more susceptible to control. Then during popcorn stage or about 5% bloom and full bloom or about 10 days apart, I use a small amount of oil, about a 1% solution and a bacteria called BT or Bacillus thuringiensis for peach twig borer. You would use that for oriental fruit moth and peaches and peach twig borer. You're using these methods, at least that's what I'm doing anyway. I'm, I, I'm also trying to, I'm trying biological materials for blossom brown rot fungus. I'm trying some of these types <clears throat> of natural components, some of which are fungus, bacteria, and viruses that are detrimental to some pests. Here you can see the names of a few of these and do your own research to see if they are a fit for you. Some of these are preventative on my part, but this does not exclude my longer term plan of soil and plant nutrition and cultural practices to provide a way to take care of and minimize these problems. We also monitor certain insects by trapping during the season to give us an indication of what the insect populations are and when they are hatching and flying to give us an indication of what may be going on in the field with certain pests. <clears throat> so these are just a few things that have come out recently that are this is a pigweed extract. Uh, this is a uh, like garlic oil and clove oil and this is orange oil and this is a fungus here. This is a bacteria. Uh, of course, some of these, this is a combination of bacteria. This is a um, hydroperoxide and uh, acetic acid. Uh, kills fungus and bacteria and instantaneous, no residue. Um, this is just a picture of some of our prune blossoms. So um, one other thing along this I was going to mention is some of the systems that I'm using have created some dynamics that have been really helpful. One is we have a really huge population of bats. And codling moth is one of the big problems in walnuts and, of course, apples. And our bat population, I think, is what's been keeping my apples clean. Because we've had, we have late apples. I don't, have, I don't do apples for production. <clears throat> but I have a late, some late apples, and I don't have any worms in them. And I'm kind of attributing that because it's my huge bat populations. And we put up bat, bat houses, and those are actually, I think, the ones we have, if they really were full, would, would hold anywhere from 600 to 1,200 bats each. We've got a large population of bats in places I don't want them because they're pretty messy, too. So I've been working on trying to move them out to the bat houses. And they've been gradually migrating 
and moving into the houses, and I'm hoping to keep them there. So that's been fun to see. Now, I don't know how much, so I'm just kind of a little diversion here. But in these systems, I may bring it up later. I, I haven't really made much mention of it. In these systems of pests, there's lots of natural controls that we miss because we don't observe them. And I was telling Miss Clinton here the other day, I said, you ever see what, you ever see toad turds? Do you know what toad turds are? Anybody see, know what toad turds are? Elise does, so my daughter. That's amazing because toad turds are huge turds. About as, they can be about as big as your little finger. And toads have habits. They, I'll go out and, my, and I'll, I'll be walking at night and there they are. They come out at night and they're hop, hop, hop and they're out eating insects. So those are my nighttime feeders on the ground. Lizards are my daytime feeders on the ground. Swallows are my daytime feeders in the, in the sky. They fly all day long just working on bugs. And bats are my nighttime feeders. Yellow jackets, huge benefit. You don't like them. I don't like them in my face, but I like them in the field. They feed on worms, especially when I have tomatoes. They're feeding and getting young for meat for their, for their young or what do they do with them. I don't know, maybe they're just eating them for food. I don't know. So there's a lot of these things going on. And this, anyway, I'll talk about some of these things maybe down the road here. But <clears throat> as things wake up and dry out in the spring, I begin chopping brush, mowing down cover crops, applying fertilizers, and plan for my first irrigation timing. The first irrigation sometimes is the most critical depending on weather and eventually will set the pace in the calendar plus or minus more or less for irrigation. I'm really surprised you don't know what toad turds look like. <laughs> that still baffles me. So anyway, this is um, my choppers, chops heavier brush and stuff, this is a bush hog and then this is one I'm working on to, uh, to bring the grass down a little tighter. Um, with many years on the same soils, so I've been farming the same ground all my life, and testing with instruments like a pressure bomb that measure exact tree needs and also using evapotranspiration rates for plant needs based on weather, as well as physical soil testing with this hand auger, we've determined when to irrigate. Now it sounds like a mouthful, but in California we've been cut back on our water and we've somewhat been made to really measure our water fairly well if we have to. But also with the variance in scheduling water with the water district, there is a range of irrigation timing, but still there are critical intervals for water to avoid fruit cracking and water stress for the tree and to have good fruit development. In my case, for my area and this crop, having good moisture in the soil at the end of June and July are important. There are growth stages for this crop. Those are growth stages for this crop. Depending on your system, you can fine-tune your tree water needs to very precise timing. Here I can give you general information. You will need to research your own particulars, but I am sure the information is there. In California, we have evapotranspiration sites around the state that measure water for use in real time for grass. Then you can convert it to your particular crop or situation. For example, with drip, you can manage the crop needs for, to, to down to the every day, if desired, and put on timers, for example, which is what I do for a, dripping, drip, for a drip system. If you want more information, there are websites where you can plug in your own data, make calculations based on your particulars, which can give you information on irrigation timing, 
Now you can control things with phone apps and timing at your fingertips if you want to get that sophisticated. So you can have electric valves you can turn on and off with your phone. And it'll give you readouts of when it needs water. Probably could even automate it. I don't know. I haven't got that. But I, I do some, some things. I, do, I, use this, I use this system. So this is a, just an example of they're measuring the use of grass. And then you're taking that information of what that uses on grass, converting it to corn or walnuts or peaches or prunes for the size of the tree and the soil you're in and the area you're in. <clears throat> and then I, you, have, you can go onto websites and actually put in all your information and it'll give you a calculation of what you're using. And then you have to know your crop, what stage of growth it is, how much water it's using every day. And that gives you that everyday stuff. And then this, this uh, farm advisor that was helping me um, test my trees, this is called a pressure bomb. And it's actually like, kind of like checking your blood pressure of your tree. It actually takes that leaf, you clip a leaf off, put it in this pressure chamber, and, and it puts pressure against it until it, it, the moisture comes out of the stem. And then you measure that pressure, it reads the pressure, and then you write that down and it, it tells you if that tree is needing water. If it's under stress, it's pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. And so we're doing that to gauge, I was doing this a few years back just to gauge when to start my first irrigation because we were limited on water. And I didn't want to start too early if my trees didn't need it. But I didn't want to start too late and have them stressed. So we were just doing this. And then this is, this is just a little pretty simple tool. I really like this. If I'm just kind of going, really, what's going on down there? I'll just take this auger, or in case my daughter, she did it. So I said, here, Lisa, let's go check the, check the dirt. So she, she's the one cranking that thing. And so anyway, then you go down and just kind of check, see where your, where your moisture is. Get an idea that way. Let's see. So here were just some flood irrigation. So this is just a lot of my irrigation is off the canal. So I'm just opening the valve on the canal. It's running through a pipeline to my field. I open a valve there, and then I just let it flood through the field. Or I put it in a gated pipe in this case when we're doing the grass hay, and we just let the water run down the field um, through these gated. This has little gates about every 30, 40 inches. So we can just open the water out of that. Um, or we can open into a head ditch and then siphon across. Um, that's kind of the old style. We do that still. We do that. And then we have a little ditch pump. You can pump out of some of these shallow ditches we have. That just lifts the water a little ways and up to the field. So as, a add in, as an add-in fertilizer component, I prefer to use high-quality egg-laying chicken manure, dry or composted because of the balanced nutrients and high-protein content. I like a compost I get from a company called Perfect Blend. But a compost blend can come with some downsides if you're needing some particular nutrient and not others because it comes as a package. I had this situation because of some of my soils are already high in phosphate. This is where not being tied to an organic market rule may be a benefit because of, with conventional fertilizers, you can often pinpoint your nutrient needs and have a clean material to use, I think, Use well, judiciously, and scientifically, this can be a good option. When fertilizing with manures, I apply with any manures before the 90 or 120 day rule before harvest. We also use our horse manure and then store it in the summer during the no apply months for later. I, am, I personally, I'm working with more biological processes in my farming to accomplish my end results. And I also have been having some good results with cover crops as well. 
results come at a slower pace and will not and with not being able to fix something as quickly. In my case, I use Whitmire McConnell's recommendations and services. He is at this conference and the soil balancing processes he is promoting. I take soil and leaf samples and use university science research as well. I get calculations of what I think is needed for the plant and soil needs and with the recommended materials and rates along with my own ideas within my budget I make applications starting in the spring and early summer. Along with this something I find helpful is to put on micronutrients or smaller amounts of nutrients recommended in this process along with the big spreader. For example, I get recommendations. I go, wow, how am I going to do that? He went, uh, so I need uh, 10 pounds of boron per acre. Well, that's, you know, and then I need some manganese and then whatever else, iron or something, and it's in smaller amounts. And, and I'm thinking, I've got to spread this over a large area, and I'm going to go out there and just, what, hand spread, you know, <laughs> you know, so I can get 20 pounds a acre or whatever. Or, you know, what, what it's 50 pounds or whatever it is. It's, you know, those smaller amounts are hard to manage. And it's been a little bit, a little bit discouraging because I don't really want to do this because how am I going to do all that little stuff? So what I found, for me, works well. Once I get my calibration on a big spreader and say I'm going to put on, this probably puts on, say it's going to, just for easy figure, I'm going to put on one acre. This thing's going to cover one acre for me. So I'll take all my micros that I'm going to put on and I need for that acre and I'll spread them on top of the spreader once I get it full. So I put on, say I need 10 pounds of boron, I'll put 10 pounds of boron on top of my spreader. This little, on top of that thing, when it's all filled up. Maybe my 50 pounds of manganese sulfate, or whatever it is. And then when I spread that, it sloughs off evenly as I go through the field. It comes off the back of the spreader, and it just drops out. So it takes my whole weight off of trying to do each one individually by putting it all together in one spreader at the same time and I can get it all at once. Works really well, I like that. You, you could put it on with the gypsum, for example. This is gypsum, calcium sulfate, what? So. That's like the chicken manure Yeah, or compost, whatever you're putting on as a bulk material, um, that's helpful, a uh, good time to do it. Sometimes then you've got to plan ahead, obviously, because you know if you don't get your soil samples in and know what you're gonna do and your, your weather's right for spreading or whatever else you gotta go, then you, you gotta have everything, all your ducks in a row to get it lined up right. You know, there's a little fun little thing called sequencing by some writer, and it's like everything you do, there's a certain sequence, and when you get it screwed up, you know, but his idea was just go fishing. <laughs> he said, well, let's just go fishing. And that was his whole story about these two guys. One's talking, hey, I got this thing to do. I got to go see my neighbor. And he said, we'll just go fishing. You know, and so that was kind of, I, I should, re I, I read it in one of my other presentations. It was kind of fun. But anyway, so the fishing idea I have in here because this is another thing I wanted to show you. As a general idea, I consider I'm building my soil biology and mineral balance and fertilizing my future crops, not necessarily crops for that year. There are lots of incredible natural biological processes taking place. This is one of them. So this is in one of my fields. The, when I irrigate in the fall, the water didn't come up to this spot here, but it got, this is just a very, about a three foot wide swath where the water didn't reach. Everywhere else in my field is all this chaff on top, and those are worm castings. I can walk in my field at that time of year, and every step I take, it's crunch, 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 crunch. And those are just all worms have come up and have fed on the top 
of the soil where my cover crop was and all my organic matter and they're feeding on that and taking it back down and I could just take my boot and scrape it across the mulch and there's worms. So that's one of the benefits of having worms. <laughs> just go out there and get them. Go down the lake. Go fishing. How do you like that? That's, a little, that's off of the lake and right there by us, Orville Lake. It's kind of nice. So you thought I was just growing worms for the soil, didn't you? So summer's occupied with mowing, irrigating, some pest monitoring, in case I need to deal with those. July is when I will take leaf samples and soil samples to measure plant uptake of nutrients and plan for future plant health. Boy, the time's going by fast. So this is my grandson, and we're, we plant some row crops in between the trees when they're young sometimes, or we're doing some watermelons. Um, this is some of my mowing and perennial cover crop. I'd like to tell you more about that. The cover, clover seed is dormant, was dormant after a five-year rotation. And I planted trees back, and my, my, my perennial clover came back and just started growing on top of the ground. It had been, been, since I took my orchard five years ago, and been growing vegetables on there with no, no clover. And now it just it came. So I, I, I went ahead and sprinkle irrigated it and encouraged it, and it's just starting to fill in now. It's been kind of on its own. It's really pretty amazing. Uh, so here we're irrigating, just uh, some of our same thing. Um, pests, uh, aphids, one, of, of one among others. Some of these problems don't show up every year, and in this case, the problem with spraying, say an oil or something like this, at this point, is, is you have to hit them to kill them, and it may slow them down and allow, and allow beneficial insects time to catch up. So it's, it's not really, doesn't work really well at this point, but... New biologicals may be helpful with a different way of, to control them. I'm working with some of those with mixed results. But best of all, I like beneficials because they go where the bugs are. And in this process, I'm seeing much more of this taking place. I'm not always intervening, but watching and observing them and allowing them to do what they can. So in, uh, if, I'm taking, if I'm taking more aggressive, maybe measures, maybe the best, like uh, trying to get my best timing for controlling these, I'm going back to my dormant spray timing to understand better if I can do something early to solve this on an immediate basis. And then going farther than that and reviewing my fertilizer or, or cultural practices to see if I have a cause there. For example, I'm using a dormant oil to do my, if I'm using a dormant oil, for example, I'm using a dormant oil, do my rates or timing need to be adjusted? Did I change something from, from before? And are my fertilizer rates and plan correct? Sometimes I think it was just the right conditions for one particular year, and one way I've seen that this is the, one way I've seen that is if the problems I have, I have are widespread with many other growers in the valley, which was the, the, this case in 2018. So this is 2018. It wasn't just me. A lot of other growers in the valley had problems with aphids. And this was mainly a bigger problem in that year. <clears throat> All the other many years, this has been a very small occurrence. So this next year will give me more indication on what is going on. So I may not take one year as my main problem, but this, we had an outbreak of a lot of aphids. And um, so I'll review my dormant program. But then these are ladybugs. This is their ladybug eggs. If you don't know what they look like, you need to find out. And this is their larva. 
This is the beetle, of course. Lacewing are good predators. This right here is a parasitized aphid, which a, a wasp does this. It'll sting this aphid. It, we've had wasps clean up our aphids in our watermelons without any type of other controls. They come and they sting them, they mummify them, they use it as an incubator for their young, and then they hatch out more wasps. And they just, that's their environment to, to hatch their young. And so they're killing all our aphids for us, which is, it's not always the case. We've had other years where it's not been that way. Uh, more pests, these are just examples and not my trees, but these are some things that I need to be aware of and to contend with on my prune trees. Though I have covered some of these things uh, already to prevent these. So blossom brown rot, this is fruit brown rot, twig bore, uh, mites, and we've seen all these things in our fields um, and, and we're working on obviously through some of these methods to control them. Uh, they, they, parasitize, they can parasitize aphids. Okay, <clears throat> uh, so this is our harvest. Harvest starts in August for sugar plums. We take sugar tests to try to pick an optimum time. We mechanically remove the fruit by shaking the trees, deliver it to a dehydrator, and then have the fruit sized and stored until it's processed for sale and shipped to market. So here you can see, this is a little tool. We cut the fruit, take the juice, check the sugar with a little uh, uh, refractometer here gives us a reading what sugar levels we have. We try to pick some. We'd like to see our fruit get, if I can get a 25% sugar, that's what I really like. Some we've seen as 20 to 30 sometimes, but typically maybe a 23, 24. And that's why we have, they're called sugar plums because they're high sugar. Regular plums would dry down the sugar to skin and pit. And so we try to pick them at an optimal level before the pressure drops when the sugar's high. If the pressure drops and the sugar's not up, you're not gonna gain anything. You're just gonna start dropping on the ground. This is my daughter, Elise. She helps, in this case, she's helping pick up these things behind the machine off the, you know, as they drop. So she's kind of just, we're trying to get everything we can. Um, this is our harvester, and I'll just show you a little clip, see if it'll play this thing. That's the wrong place. So here you, here you can see uh, one on each side of the tree, and uh, this side will shake the tree. <clears throat> And then we're just trying to pull off any scragglers because it doesn't clean them all. And then as you go this side, you see that deflector lets the fruit roll off onto the other side. See right here, this the fruit runs down. And then as, the tree, as it pulls away, this side will tip up. We'll dump the fruit on the conveyor belt and then run it through back through here through the fan, blow the, the, the leaves out. And then we have another machine come there. You can see the, um, that's just two, two weights on shafts that are tied together that spin and shake the tree. And then, um, then we have a, another machine that comes out, we pick up the bins and we'll take them in um, uh, roadside or, or over here where we're loading, we'll load them with forklifts on the trucks. And then we take them to the dehydrator. The dehydrator uh, puts them on trays like this, single layer. We run them through a tunnel, a drying tunnel, takes the moisture out, dries the fresh fruit down into a, a, about a three to one dry away. So we take out two thirds of the moisture and then we run them through a grater. So it's a really long, probably longer in this room, a long screened plates with holes in them. And we run it across there and the small to big. So the small fruit drops out first and the big ones drop out the last and they run into these bins. And then this size here, this particular one is 42, 45. That's count per pound. So those are 42 to 45 prunes per pound. And it'll go anywhere from uh, say 20, 30 down to uh, 150. And the big ones, uh, we can't pit. The pitting size is anywhere from 80 to 40. 
and we, the top ones either go for juice or whole prunes, and the bottom ones go for juice or cow feed. And that's kind of the process. So, and then we, this is our, some of our, this is our label, uh, Woolly Farms, and uh, this is just one of our bins. This has the off grade, there's 7% fruit in there that maybe has something the matter with it, which is pretty good grade in this case. Uh, we've had some really good grades. So here, sizing, pitting, so the conventional fruit, conventional um, uh, growers will, when they take the pit out, you lose about 15% of your weight. So they'll, they'll add a preservative and add moisture back in to make the fruit more edible. We can't do that because, so we try to keep our dried fruit relatively dry when we, when we market it because it, we don't have any preservatives on that. You can't prevent mold or brown rot or whatever else is, you get on there. So you want to keep it fairly dry. So it's, it, in our case, it seems uh, a little bit tough sometimes. You've got to soften them up. Um, I consider the whole dried sugar plum unpitted our best product. Not only is it the largest and sweetest fruit from the tree, but when you stew the whole sugar plum, the pit will diffuse a subtle flavor into the fruit and add a unique taste to the already delicious fruit. I have some samples to give out of a few softened ones in the back. It's probably not enough for everybody, but if not, or not enough, I also have some regular whole prunes that are unsoftened, so they're back there on the table. When you leave, you can take a bag with you if there's enough for everybody to take, take where there is. Uh, so then we do it again. We start our season again, um, irrigation, um, take our, replace our trees, pruning, spraying, chopping, harvest. Uh, but I wanted to share something with you, some thoughts, um, just before I close here on this talk. Uh, in the spiritual realm, it is said to behold the Lamb of God, to have a pattern to follow and develop into a Christ-like person. Similarly, having a goal or picture of making a tree or orchard requires a vision or pattern to follow as well. I say this because it helps to see ahead of time what you want to accomplish, what you want your orchard to be and look like. What is the end result you want? And to keep that in mind, you may be thinking about growing and developing an orchard. And one of the thoughts I have had is that in that process, God may be thinking, hmm, a way to develop this person. I say this not because I totally understand it, but because I think it is true. In this process, we day by day get to look at God's creative power and participate in it. So a few words I read to think about a few things God has in mind for us in the new earth and give us something to look forward to is in Isaiah 65, 21 and 22. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So just think, someday all these weird things we deal with here will be a pleasure. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.